Holy Spirit, I'm so thankful that you have promised us in your word that you will guide us into the truth concerning Jesus Christ. That's what we need more than anything else. We need truth. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, several weeks ago, we began this study, what I call the most important truth of all. And it really is the truth about who God is. And uh, I pointed out... excuse me, a recent survey that revealed that many people, and and unfortunately some Christians included, have a less than accurate view of who Jesus Christ really is. Of that survey, it found that here in America, 55% of people who believe in God and even in the Trinitarian uh, Trinitarian nature of God, 55% of those believe that Jesus is the first and the greatest creation of God. In other words, the, the belief is that God created Jesus and 55% of, of Americans who embrace the, the the belief in God thinks that Jesus was created by God the Father. And among those who call themselves Christians and who attend worship at least once a month, 68% would say the same thing, that Jesus was the greatest being that God ever created. Now, when you think about the fact that 80% of Americans say that Jesus is the Son of God the Father... But only 41% of those would say that, that Jesus the Son did not exist before that babe was born in the manger. Do you see how messed up we are in our understanding of who Jesus Christ is? In other words, 59% of Americans think that the birth of that babe in the manger was when Jesus the Son of God began. And have just basically dismissed the idea that Jesus is God, eternally existent with the Father from the beginning, uh, from before time even began. So what this speaks of is that the majority of people see Jesus as in some way inferior to God the Father. So let me ask you, when it comes to Jesus Christ, who is he really? Um, is he simply a man? who became God? Or is Jesus God who just came down and indwelt in a man? Or is Jesus God who is simply appearing to be a flesh and blood man? Or maybe Jesus is a spiritual being that was ordered by God to become a man. Or do you believe that Jesus really is fully God and fully man? So this morning, I want us to to really dig into what we call the doctrine of Jesus Christ, Uh, a doctrine that states emphatically that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And I want you to, to have confidence in that statement because, folks, it makes all the difference in the world what you believe about Jesus Christ. Uh, Travel with me a number of years ago, back to the Indiana Jones movies, and some of you saw those movies, and uh, if you remember in the third movie, there was a scene where Indiana Jones had to make a choice, and there was a table covered with 12 different uh, goblets, cups, and and so forth, and his task, his challenge was to to, uh, find the golden chalice, the, uh, you know, the, the Holy Grail. That's the, you know, supposedly the goblet that Jesus used in the Last Supper. And, uh, 
And so he's got to find that. And to, a drink from that will give eternal life, but a drink from the wrong cup will bring instant death. And so, uh, you know, Indiana, Indiana Jones' nemesis, his arch rival, quickly grabs this cup that's uh, gold encrusted with jewels and he greedily drinks and he's dead immediately. And the, the old crusader who guards those cups kind of understatedly said, he chose poorly. Yeah. Well, put yourself in the movie with me. I mean, uh, suppose you have in front of you cups that represent different ideas about who Jesus Christ is. And you've got to choose the right cup, the cup that will give to you eternal life, one that will lead to, to eternal life and the, all the others will lead to spiritual death. Uh, how do you choose? What, what do you base your choice on? I mean, if you, ta- if you choose based on intuition and reasoning, folks, they're not enough. They can easily lead us astray. Or you can choose based on the opinions of others. But that's not going to help you no matter how confident they sound in what they're saying. Or you can base it on your own opinions. But you know what? Our our opinions on the issue really aren't probably worth much either. The only one who can tell you the truth about who Jesus Christ is, is God himself. So this morning, I want to really challenge you to choose correctly. To choose a cup that has the correct belief about who Jesus Christ really is. Now, why is this important? Let me give you two reasons why I think it's important. First of all, knowing Jesus Christ is or should be our life's continuing priority. This ought to be the priority of our life, to know Jesus Christ, to know Him, and it ought to be a continuing priority in our life. Look at at Philippians chapter 3, the very first part of verse 8. Paul said this, he says, Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Uh, You might want to in your notes there or in your Bible, circle those words, everything else. In other words, what Paul is saying is take a ledger sheet and write on it everything that you own, your house, your cars, your jet skis, your snowmobiles, your RVs, your antiques, your rifles, your electronics, everything that you own and put it in a ledger and then write the word worthless across it. You see, it's worthless compared with the incalculable value of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I mean, folks, even relationship with your family and friends cannot compare with the grace and the forgiveness and the eternal life that we've been given in Jesus Christ. You know, once a year, Christie's Auction House in New York City will have what's called a free appraisal weekend where people can bring their stuff they pull out of the attic or out of their closets or maybe the shed in the back and they bring them to to be appraised thinking, man, I've got a treasure here, something of worth and of value. And what generally happens is most people go away disappointed because what they brought in was just commonplace. It wasn't worth much of anything. Yet one of the appraisers tells a story of a woman who brought what she thought was a piece of costume jewelry. In fact, she had taken it to a jeweler, and he said, well, this is just costume jewelry. But once she brought it to Christie's and the appraisers looked at it, they determined that what she had was an 11.4 carat ruby. 
that had been created in 1904 by Tiffany and Company. In fact, Tiffany and Company still had the original uh, drawing of the design for this uh, for this this ruby. And so, subsequently, Christie's Auction House auctioned that off for $385,000. Tiffany and Company bought it back uh, from this woman. Here was a woman who thought that she had something that was useless, that was common, that had no value at all, and she kept it in the back of her closet in a box full of costume jewelry. Now, as you think about that story, maybe the prayer in our hearts ought to be, Lord, Teach me to treat that which is so precious, my relationship with Jesus Christ, as what it really is, as a value, and not as common. Teach me to put it in the right box of that which is most precious, most valuable in my life. I want to embrace that as the most important of all truths. So the first thing that I, why I think this is important is that we need to realize that knowing Jesus Christ is life's most, uh, con- is a continuing priority in our life. Second, knowing Jesus Christ is also your life's continuing challenge. It's a challenge to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter said this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He said, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. What he says is that everything we need for living a godly life is found in knowing Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Messiah. I mean, getting to know Jesus Christ is like any other relationship. It's developed by spending time over and over. And the more we develop our relationship with Jesus Christ, the more we're going to recognize how valuable it really is. So is Jesus somebody that you only know by name? Is he just somebody who is kind of a historic figure that you've kind of heard about or, or, or thought about? Or do you count him as a friend? Count him as your best friend. What I hope that you see today is that Jesus Christ really desires to be your best friend. Folks, doctrine isn't just head knowledge. What we're talking about is a heart relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I don't want you just to be informed about Jesus Christ. No, I want you to develop a deep relationship with him as your Lord and as your Savior. And the more you know about Jesus Christ, the more you realize how deeply he loves you and how he wants uh, he wants you to know how much he loves you so that you in turn can return that love to him so let's get down to the basics because at the very core of of the bible god tells us with a very emphatic statement and simply this that jesus is fully god and at the very same time he's fully man look at john 1 1 In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in in John's epistle, 1 John 4 and verse 2, if a person acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, that person has the Spirit of God. So in these two verses, we see that Jesus is fully God, but we also see that Jesus is fully man. And so today we're going to kind of dig into those two essential truths, that Jesus is God and Jesus is man. 
And the reason why is that I don't want you to succumb to false teachings about Jesus Christ, because there's a lot of them out there right now, but also to come to understand and appreciate that Jesus understands and he knows your deepest needs and can meet those deepest needs. So let's look at the first truth. The first truth is that Jesus is God. Now, how do we know that's true? Well, let's look into God's word for evidence, okay? The first thing that, the, that Scripture tells us is that Jesus said He is God. Now, I know you've heard people say, well, Jesus never said He was God. I don't think they read the Bible, okay? Because over and over again, we see Jesus saying, I am God. Look at John 5, 18. It says, so the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill Him. For He not only broke the Sabbath... He called God his Father, therefore making him equal with God. So the Jewish leaders in that day knew that he claimed to be God. Look at John 10, 30. Jesus' words, the Father and I are one. I don't know how you can get any clearer than that. Or John 14, 9. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Or John 8, 58. Jesus answered his critics and he said this. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born... I am. Circle those words, I am. You see, that's the sacred name of God that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. He says, I am. That's my name. And it was such a sacred name that the Jewish people would not pronounce it for fear that they would would be blaspheming God. And yet that's the name that Jesus called himself by. And, And if you doubt that he really meant that, look at the reaction of the crowd. In that chapter, it says that they picked up stones to stone him, to kill him. They knew that what he he said and, and what he meant. And so they picked up those stones to kill him for blaspheming God. Jesus understood and his enemies understood that Jesus was claiming to be God. But secondly, others said he was God. <clears throat> this started even hundreds of, years, hundreds of years before he was born. Go back to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, and that great prophecy that we use at Christmas time a lot. It says this, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and then catch, and he will be called Mighty God. See, there's a statement from other people that he was God. And and the statement that Jesus was God continued with those closest to him. Even his disciples would say that. For instance, Thomas, after the resurrection, when Jesus confronted him in in his resurrected state, Thomas said, my Lord and my what? God, exactly. And then Paul, over in Philippians chapter uh, 2 and beginning of verse 11, talks about that very same thing. He says this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue, on, uh, every tongue in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Well, let me start over again. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, take that passage from Philippians 2 and compare it to this verse 
uh, this passage from Isaiah 45 and verse 22 and 23. Listen to what Isaiah wrote. He says, let all the world look to me for salvation. For I am God, there is no other. This is God speaking through Isaiah. I am God, there is no other. I have sworn by my own name, I have spoken the truth, and I will never go back on my word. Every knee will bend to me, and every tongue will confess allegiance to me. Now, remember that Paul, before he became a Christian, was a Pharisee. Somebody who knew the Old Testament inside and out. And, and, you know, here he is, he's explaining the lordship of Jesus Christ to the believers at Philippi, and he deliberately chooses to paraphrase this passage from Isaiah. Folks, for Paul, it would have been blasphemy to use that verse to talk about anybody else but God. But here he is, he's using that to talk about Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow before Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is God. Paul also wrote in Colossians 2.9, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in human body. So a third thing that we see in Scripture is that Jesus is worshipped as God. Matthew 14.33, Then the disciples worshipped Him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. Hebrews 1.6, the writer says this, Let all the God, of God's angels worship Him. And so as you, as you look at the, the gospel records, one of the things you see is accompanying all the miracles of healing that Jesus did. Uh, people would respond to that with worship. There was a leper, there was a blind man, there was a Gadarene demoniac, and there were others. After they were healed, what did they do? They fell down and worshiped. Jesus Christ. And here's the key. Jesus accepted their worship. I mean, we read Thomas's confession earlier where he said, my Lord and my God. And notice that Jesus didn't say, no, no, wait a minute, Thomas, you got this all wrong. You don't worship me because I'm not God. Don't do that. No, he accepted his worship. He affirmed the statement that Thomas gave him. You know, if Jesus were not God, he would have rejected human worship. But instead, he accepted it, and he blessed people who worshipped him. A fourth thought that we see in Scripture is that Jesus does what only God can do. That's proof that he's, that he's God. He does what only God can do. And folks, that's a fact that just drove his enemies crazy. Uh, <clears throat> you know, they didn't want to accept Jesus as God. Because that would mean there would have to be some change take place in their life. And frankly, they didn't want to change. And by the way, isn't that where a lot of us are today? We don't want to accept Jesus into our heart as God because we don't want to change. We're not ready to change. But here is, is Jesus. And even in the face of opposition, he kept doing things, which by the Jewish religious leader's standard, these were the things only God could do. He, he talks about he can forgive sin. He, he says, all judgment is in my hands. Only God judges. He, he promised to send the Holy Spirit. He, he raised the dead. Things that only God can do. So let's ask the obvious question then. <clears throat> what are some evidence, further evidence, that support Jesus' claim to be God. I mean, think about it. Before Jesus came, the prophet said he's God. Jesus went about on this earth saying, I am God. And then after his death and his resurrection, the disciples were going around stating he is God. 
but, you know, but how do we know what he's saying is, is really true? What evidence backs up those bold claims that Jesus really is God? Uh, you probably have heard <clears throat> somebody quote or share with you that famous uh, quotation from C.S. Lewis when he said, don't come to me with any nonsense about Jesus being a good teacher because he didn't give us that choice. So he is either a liar from hell or he's a lunatic on the order of somebody who says I'm a poached egg or he is who he claims to be the son of God. But don't come to me with this nonsense about him being a good teacher. He didn't leave us that choice. So anyone can claim to be God, right? But the di- it's different with Jesus. Look at the difference. His life backed up these claims that he was God. Evidence number one, the fulfillment of prophecy. You look at prophecy over and over and over and over again. Prophecies are fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus talking to his disciples after the resurrection said this in Luke 24 verse 44. He said to them, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, some people might say, well, you know, these uh, prophecies that were filled, they're just coincidences. They, you know, they, they just are what we might call statistical accidents. You know, Jesus just happened to be born in Bethlehem. He just happened to be a relative of, of King David and so forth. Well, you can respond to that with really two different lines of argument. One be that these predictions are more than just a matter of chance. Jesus just happened to heal a blind man. And the Old Testament prophecy said he will give sight to the blind. Or he just happened to rise from the dead. Folks, that's beyond statistical probability. Uh, the second answer plays off of that, and that is, look at the sheer volume of the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. One writer set out to um, look at the probabilities that just eight prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Um, And his conclusion was that the chance that eight different prophecies were fulfilled in one man, you know, who's ever lived, the probability be, would be 1 to 10 to the 17th power. Now, 10 to the 17th power, that's 10, that's 1 with 17 zeros behind it. Let me illustrate it this way to help you to understand the, the, uh, the scope of that probability. Uh, let's say that, that you take silver dollars. You take 10 to the 17th power of silver dollars, one followed by 17 zeros. That's a lot of silver dollars. And you take those and you put those over the state of Texas from border to border. They would be two feet deep. That's how many silver dollars you have, okay? And let's say you take one of those silver dollars and you paint it red and you take it out there and you put it somewhere out in the state of Texas and then you stir up the whole mess. And then you take somebody and you blindfold them and you lead them out, you know, and say, now I want you to go as far as you want, go any direction you want. I want you to just go until you think you're there. And then I want you to reach down and find that red silver dollar. The chances of that happening are one to 10 to the 17th power. And that's just with eight prophecies. But here's the kicker. 
Jesus fulfilled over 300 biblical prophecies with his coming to earth. There's proof. Jesus is God. Um, one of the things that I've provided for you, it's out on the visitor's table. There's some sheets there with a number of the biblical prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus. So as you leave, grab one of those. <clears throat> it's not 300, but it's enough to help you to, to know Jesus is God. Look at the prophecies that he, that he fulfilled. So there's that first evidence. Second evidence is his miracles. <clears throat> I mean, Jesus himself, when he was asked, prove to us that you're the Messiah, what did he do? He pointed to his miracles. In Luke chapter 7, verse 20, it says, John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? And at that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases and illnesses. And he cast out evil spirits and restored, restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told Jesus' disciples, go back to John and tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. His miracles prove that he was God. Uh, and remember this. Most of the miracles of healing that Jesus performed, there were hundreds of witnesses who saw that take place. Proof that he is God. So if you need proof, look at the miracles. Another evidence is his resurrection. Now that's a miracle, but it's, 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 we need to treat that kind of separately, you know. I mean, we know that Jesus, for instance, raised Lazarus from the dead. <clears throat> That's one thing. But <clears throat> Jesus' resurrection is different. Lazarus was raised, but he would die again. Jesus was raised to live forever. And here's the thing that's even more incredible. Jesus predicted that it would happen. And he predicted the number of days that he would remain in the tomb. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. Jesus predicted it just like it would happen. And not only that, but Jesus said it happened by his choice. And through his power. That is, he claimed the authority behind the resurrection. In John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, Jesus said this, The Father loves me because I sacrificed my life so that I may take it back up again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. So you have the fulfillment of prophecy, you have his miracles, and you have his resurrection. All clear evidences that, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Jesus came into this world as God in human flesh. <clears throat> now, the first truth is simply this, that Jesus is fully God. And you know what? In reality, many of us have, probably have a little problem thinking about that. Yeah, now Jesus was God. I think what we do have problems with sometimes is the second truth that we're looking at today, and that is Jesus is also fully man. He's a human being like you and me. 
You know, if the, if the truth were really told, I, I think that before we became Christians, we had difficulty. We struggled with this thought that Jesus is God. How, how could that be? But you know what? Once you become a Christian and the more you, you live as a Christian, the more difficult it comes to believe that Jesus is fully man. Uh, <clears throat> you know, the truth is, though, that we need to hold on to both truths for, so we can really fix our eyes on the real Jesus. So truth number two, let's look at real quickly, is that Jesus is man. Uh, can you imagine going to school with Jesus? I mean, think about somebody who would blow the curve for your class. You know, uh, so you maybe you're the competitive type. You've got to outdo him in, in test taking, okay? All right, how about geography? Well, he created the world and he put all those, you know, how's he going to do that? Well, maybe history. No, he was there when it all happened. He saw it all happen. Well, how about P.E.? Do you think Jesus has a 200-mile fastball? I don't know. Yeah, which really brings up another question. Was Jesus some kind of superman, you know, man of steel kind of strength? No, folks, he was a real human being. And when he hit his thumb with the hammer in his carpenter shop, it hurt just like it would hurt you if you hit your thumb with a hammer. Now, he probably said some things a little different than you and I would say when we hit our, you know, with our, our thumb with a hammer. But he was fully man, fully man. How do we know Jesus is, is fully man? Well, first of all, he had a human birth. He came into the world just like you and I did as a babe. He was born as a babe. And, and when you think about how vulnerable, how helpless, how dependent a, a baby is, you get a real look at how incredibly, incredible the humbling of himself in Jesus, the humility of Jesus, that he had to choose to be born as a human, as a baby, a helpless babe. So he had a human birth. He also showed human growth. Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Notice there are four human ways in which Jesus grew. He grew intellectually, he grew physically, he grew spiritually, and he grew socially. So he wasn't born with some kind of superhuman brain, you know. He was full of knowledge from the very beginning. No, he had to learn just like you and I learn. He had to memorize the Old Testament, which Jewish boys in that day did. He had to learn that, the Old Testament from memory, even though he had written it. He had to, uh, to learn about creation, although he made creation. See, Jesus was perfect, but don't let that cause you to miss the fact that he grew up just like a human being. And as he grew, third, he experienced human emotions. You know, most of the movies that, that are about the life of Jesus, they picture Jesus without much emotion at all. You know, he's just kind of in some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of uh, mystical days as he walks through life and all that. But that's not true. <clears throat> Jesus' life was filled with emotions. It was filled with life. I mean, Jesus felt grief. What's our favorite verse to memorize? John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Sure, of course. Jesus grew up in a culture, a Jewish culture, that knew how to show emotions. You know, when, when a Jewish person wept, they didn't want just little tears coming down their cheek. I mean, they wept. They wailed. They cried out in grief. 
They tore their outer clothes in grief. They, they knew how to express grief. Jesus experienced grief. He experienced sorrow. Matthew 26, verse 38. Then Jesus said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and, and keep watch with me. And then add to these emotions amazement and love and, and wonder and distress and compassion and anger. Now, remember, anger is an emotion. It's not a sin. What becomes sin is how you handle the anger, what you do with the anger. But Jesus felt angry, but he never sinned in doing that. So he felt sorrow, but he also had human experience and needs. In the scriptures, you read that he got tired, he got hungry, he got thirsty, he was in agony, he was tempted, and he died. He went through all the things that you and I go through in life, including physical death. So why did he do that? Why would Jesus leave the perfections of heaven to come to this earth to go through all of that? One word, and that's the word love. He loved you. He did this for you. So the bottom line is that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And maybe that's hard for us to grasp. <laughs> In fact, for centuries, people have struggled to comprehend that because it really flies in in the face of all we know and, and all that we have experienced. I mentioned several weeks ago at the beginning of this series that uh, in 325 AD, um, the Council of Nicaea convened to really deal with um, some false teachings concerning the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. Well, in 491 AD, another council came uh, church council got together to deal with another false teaching concerning the, the nature of Jesus Christ. And that council affirmed the truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Listen to what they said. They said, Jesus exists, quote, in two natures which exist without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the difference of the natures having been in no wise taken away by reason of the union, but rather the properties of each being preserved and both concurring into one person, end quote. Holy cow, what did I just read? I mean, that, that's almost more mysterious than the doctrine of the Trinity. So what was the Council of Chalcedon trying to tell us? They were saying three things. Number one, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man 100% of the time. Now that's bad math, but it's great theology, okay? So Jesus is fully God, fully man all the time. And second, <clears throat> they're telling us Jesus was not God just indwelling a man. He was not a man who became God. He was not God appearing to be man. Rather, he combined into one personality, both the full Godhead and full humanity. That's what they were trying to say about Jesus Christ. And then they also said that Jesus is perfect humanity wrapped around undiminished deity. So here's a new word for you to learn, okay? Look here on the screen. Hypostatic union. That's what they're talking about, hypostatic union. That means the union of undiminished deity and perfect humanity forever. Fully God, fully man in one person. 
And so out of that comes really three facts. First of all, Jesus has always been God. Jesus has always been God. He is eternal in nature. He existed before the world began. He will exist after the world is over. He's eternal. Jesus has always been God. John 1, 2. He was with God in the beginning. But second, He became man while continuing to be God, okay? John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then the third thing that they're telling us is that Jesus continues to exist as God and as man. He continues to exist as God and as man. See, <clears throat> this truth that Jesus is both God and man really is challenging to us. Our, our thoughts can really become muddy, and it, it's so easy to make the mistake of thinking that in Jesus we kind of have a mixture of some God and some man, and they're kind of all mixed in together. Jesus being man, folks, does not diminish the fact that He is God. And His being God does not in any way take away from the fact that He is fully man. See, Jesus is not separately God and then separately man. No, He is both fully God and fully man. Now, I, I don't know what you want to think, you know, what you think about when you think Jesus took on a human body that, you know, maybe in some way that made Him something less than God. Um, because we know that God is able to be any, you know, anywhere, all places at, at one time. And yet Jesus, while He was here on earth, was able to be only at one place at one time. So here's the key. Well, while He was here on this earth, Jesus made a choice. And I want you to hear this. This is really important here. Jesus limited Himself when He became fully man, but He did not lessen Himself as fully God. Let me say that again. Jesus limited Himself but he didn't lessen himself. He remained fully God. Now let me, let me spend just a moment explaining what I mean by that. Look at Philippians 2, verse 6 through 8 again. It says, who, and he's talking about Jesus here, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What Paul is telling us, what the Holy Spirit through Paul, hearing God's Word, is telling us, <clears throat> is that Jesus limited himself. First of all, he took on human flesh. He took on human form, a human body. And second, he limited his presence to one place at one time. And next, he limited his understanding. I mean, remember, Jesus did not become any less God by deciding to limit himself. You know, as he walked on this earth, he still possessed those attributes of omniscience and omnipresence and, and uh, omnipotence. And in fact, there are some times in the gospel records when you see his omniscience, his ability as God to, to read minds, to think of what, what's going on. You see that. For instance, uh, look there in, in uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 8. He says, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Now, 
Jesus could have exercised any one of those attributes at any time, but he chose to limit himself. And so the idea of Jesus being limited and yet also being God, that's difficult for us to understand. What we need to realize is that there are things in God's economy, there are things in the nature of God that you and I are not going to understand. And there are truths about him that are going to be difficult to grasp. But if God weren't a mystery, then he wouldn't call for us to worship him and adore him because he's different than we are. If he's just an everyday Joe, I can dismiss him and think, no big deal. But he's a mysterious God that is so much greater and bigger than you and I are that he calls on us to worship him and to obey him because he is so much bigger than we are. So why did Jesus choose to limit himself? Again, that one word, he did it out of love. He did it because he loved us. He did it so that he could die for us, that we might have life. Paul again said he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So who is Jesus? Folks, that's a question that each and every one of us need to answer. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl need to answer that question. Who is Jesus Christ? So you have three cups in front of you. Three cups, and you must choose one of those. One cup gives you eternal life. The other two give to you eternal death. Which do you choose? You could probably choose the one that says Jesus is a liar, that I don't going to believe anything that is said about Jesus. This, this Bible is, is, is fiction. It's made up stuff. That I don't believe that for one minute, that Jesus is the Son of God. I, I can choose that cup. Or you could choose the second cup, the cup that says, well, Jesus is just a lunatic on the order of somebody who says he's a a poached egg. You could say that he's schizophrenic, that he's delusional. You could choose that. And if, you know, I don't want anything to do with Christianity because if I do, then people are going to label me as some kind of loon, some kind of idiot, because look what he's doing, you know. I could choose that cup. Or I could choose the cup that declares that He is Lord, and I worship Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that He's fully God and He's fully man. And you can embrace what He did for you on the cross to give you life, to give you eternal life. You can embrace what He did. That's the cup that says Jesus Christ is exactly who He claims to be, and that believing in Him, you have the gift of eternal life. So which cup do you choose? Will it be that he's a liar? Will it be that he's a lunatic? Or will you choose to make him Lord of your life? Will you embrace him today as Lord and Savior? You can do that right now. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. And you can pray this prayer in your heart. And you can acknowledge that he is Lord, fully God, fully man, who came to live and to die just for you. Let's pray. Maybe in your heart you just say these words, Dear Jesus, I choose today to acknowledge that you are fully God and fully man. I'm grateful for that fact because it allows me to receive from you the gift of eternal life. I admit that I am a sinner and I'm in need of of you in my life. I ask you today to come into my heart and, and to change it. I declare that from this day forward, I will live for you and for you alone. Thank you now 
for the gift of eternal life as I commit myself to you completely. In your name, amen.